Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm joined again by Dr. Gabrielle Fondero. Hopefully you guys know who Gabrielle is by now. This will be her third time on the podcast. Uh, and she is, if you don't know, an RP coach, so Renaissance Periodization. Uh, Mike Isratel, James Hoffman, both been on the podcast. Jared Feather, uh, Renaissance Periodization are a great company with great coaches over there. And uh, Gabrielle has a PhD in human nutrition, foods and exercise and did um, a lot of her kind of dissertations and things towards gut health and has become kind of slowly developing, I would say, like I said, a rising star as kind of a gut health expert. And I think that's really great because there's so much new and kind of confusing information coming out about gut health. Um, so when um, Gabrielle is coming over to London, and this is something that we wanted to kind of publicize with the podcast, with Mike Israel and James Hoffman, and it's coming over and presenting new information on the microbiome to be really exciting uh, and kind of the impact of exercise on kind of digestive health and kind of new kind of scope and vision, how that might be able to kind of impact things. And that is on the 11th of May. So if you are interested in learning more about kind of gut health, the implications of that, and also kind of recovery through James and hypertrophy, obviously through Mike, then definitely come down and kind of meet everyone. It's a, always a great time. And I think this is your first time in London, right, Gabrielle? Yes, that's right. So you can come over and, I don't know, introduce Gabrielle to all the kind of English things that we do um, <laughs> and help her get a taste for London. Uh, so to kind of really show off Gabrielle's knowledge and kind of get a lot of things and show you value, uh, we wanted to do a Q&A, uh, so surrounding her area of expertise. So we are going to dive into that. And the first question I wanted to dive into is kind of why might green powders be harmful? This is something that's kind of they're becoming much more popular out there. And I know yourself and uh, Miguel Blacout are working on an article together. So I'd love to hear kind of some teasers into what kind of could be the implications for green powders, because a lot of people just see them as like green powders. Surely more is better, more veggies that we're consuming. It's just a great thing to have as an addition. I don't think people think further than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am really excited to be collaborating with Miguel. This was something that I wanted to touch on a long time ago, and I just love all the work that he puts out. And he and I are similarly, you know, skeptical and love to actually get into the research and look at things from a, a, a pragmatic standpoint. Um, and greens powders are so, so popular now. I think you get, you know, it's sort of like this greens powders, collagen powder, um, and then maybe like throw in some BCAAs or something, but this is like the trifecta of, you know, what everything or CBD, um, that people are promoting really heavily right now. So in most cases, greens powders are a combination of, um, dried, uh, fruits and vegetables that have been powdered, um, digestive enzymes, and then usually also a probiotic blend. Greens powders are different. I mean, depending on the brand, you're going to get a different blend of what, you know, fruits and vegetables are in there uh, and then what sort of enzymes and probiotic blends that they add in as well. In many cases, you're going to see that these are proprietary blends, and that means that the company isn't disclosing exactly how much of each of those compounds um, are present. And sometimes they may also have, you know, added vitamins and minerals or antioxidants and things like that. So um, it's sort of a hodgepodge. You can kind of think of it like a, a multivitamin in powdered form with extra things added. So I'd say the number one, um, <laughs> the number one risk to use necessarily to your health, but to your wallet, uh, because greens powders are pretty expensive, and you know they make claims that it's 
now 11 or you know 15 servings of fruits and vegetables in in one dose um, actually, I was just at um, the ISSN conference um, at KSU this past weekend, and there was a fellow there who was selling a greens drink. And he said, it's, you know, 11 servings of fruits and vegetables or whatever. And I said, oh, well, how do you quantify that, that you actually are, you know, supplying the equivalent number of servings? And he was like, oh, well, you know, there's an algorithm that we use. And I think it's based on just like, you know, the vitamins and minerals that you get in that drink versus like, you know, what you would have to eat to get that same thing. And I was like, okay, you know, so we're really looking at, you could kind of make the same claim about a multivitamin. A multivitamin contains 100% of the, you know, nutrients that you would get in a full day of eating. So clearly you don't need to eat anymore. Just take a multivitamin. And we know that that, <laughs> that is not accurate. Uh, so when we look at the probiotic blends in there, this is sort of, you know, Miguel and I are kind of dividing up what we want to, to touch on. Um, so I'm looking into the probiotic blends um, and looking at the efficacy, not just in individuals who might have IBS or, um, you know, an inflammatory bowel disease, but also in healthy individuals, because in most cases, these are being promoted by healthy individuals who exercise to other healthy individuals who exercise and looking at the efficacy in those populations. I don't want to give it away, but um, it's, it's not impressive right. in, in terms of what they're doing for a healthy active population. Um, and then in some cases, you know, even in, in with, with some of these bacteria, they haven't been studied, you know, for like five or more years and maybe there's only one randomized control trial. And so this is something that I've talked about with probiotics research a lot in the past is this is just this, this problem of reproducibility. Um, or if something has been reproduced, maybe we have two positive trials and then six negative trials. Now we have a net of, of negative four trials. So really that shows that that thing was not effective for, for what it was promoted to do. Um, next, the digestive enzymes. So enzymes are uh, made of proteins and they are active at specific levels of pH or acidity. And when you put a blend of digestive enzymes into this product, that means that those enzymes have to survive transit through your mouth, through your stomach, and then get to your intestines um, to, to be active there. And uh, again, you know, this is something that has not been studied widely in a healthy population um, really much at all. And when you look into the, the studies that have been done, it is uh, there's conflict of interest in those studies. And in the ones that have been done on people who have a pathology like um, exocrine, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, um, where they're not producing their own digestive enzymes, yes, prescription digestive enzymes are effective at really, really high doses. And even those enzymes are largely denatured, which means they lose their functional shape in the stomach. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, getting into the, the sort of, they call them like, you know, the superfood blends and things like that, where we're taking, you know, um, fruits and vegetables and then drying them and putting them into powdered form. There are some micronutrients that are going to be affected by heat processing, by drying. Um, and so we don't really know much about the bioavailability in those products. And then when you put them all together and you put them in a greens powder, um, there's really nothing out there on, you know, greens powders being effective in really any population. Now, there are certain brands of products that are, uh, that have been used in some randomized control trials, and they're usually um, promoted pretty heavily by people in the medical field who often, who also happen to sell those products and run those studies. Um, and they're done on things like, you know, blood pressure. And when you're using something like a blood pressure cuff, 
um, to determine that there's a really wide margin of error. So we don't have like the sensitivity of testing what's going on. Um, so uh, also some of the greens powders do contain um, a level of, of FODMAP type fibers, which are you know excellent prebiotics and certainly can have a beneficial effect on the growth of bifidobacterium. Um, but if you do have uh, IBS, uh, an increase in your FODMAP intake could actually exacerbate your symptoms and cause more gas and bloating and gastric upset. Uh, so I think we have to be very careful about what claims we're making with these. I see a lot of claims about, you know, improving digestive health and gut health and bloating. And it's a way to get in your fruits and vegetables, you know, if you absolutely can't during the day. Um, and, and those really just don't appear to be supported so far. Um, now, you know, in terms of like actual danger, I would say that they're probably pretty benign, um, but doing more harm in terms of, um, you know, what are we, what are we believing, you know, and what are people promoting as something being evidence-based? So I think it's harm overall just to the industry, um, to, to trust between practitioners and clients and, um, to your wallet. No, a hundred percent. And I think a lot of people will recognize the whole proprietary blend, uh, proprietary blend difficult word to say, from like yeah. pre-workouts. That was a huge thing for quite a while where, and now I think a lot of pre-workouts have decided, okay, actually, we're, we're going to tell people what's in it because people now realize that this was an easy way for us to kind of put the blinders on so people thought something was good and it actually didn't have the efficacious doses that we required. And now it seems like green powders, hopefully people should remember that from the pre-workouts, but maybe they're not. Um, yeah. And I think a really important message that you said there is, it's kind of, I guess, similar to the CBD for looking at that, where there's maybe limited research and not necessarily anything necessarily saying it's bad. There's just not sufficient mm -hmm. evidence to promote it as something that you can kind of highly recommend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think we just need to be transparent. You know, like yeah. if this works for you, there's a chance that it could be placebo. Placebo effect works, mm -hmm. but you know, the mechanism is very different. <laughs> and in terms of comparison, I don't know if it can be compared to a multivitamin. Obviously they've been around for ages and kind of people are like with those, it's kind of a bit mixed in terms of whether or not they should be taken or not. And I, most people are on the side of like, they're not a replacement for anything. It's just kind of a shotgun approach in terms of maybe when you're dieting, you've got less food coming in, you just take a couple of multivitamins as basic ones they're cheap they could potentially be helping there there's probably no negatives are they uh, can you compare them to a multivitamin would you choose a multivitamin over a greens powder at the moment i probably wouldn't choose a kitchen sink multivitamin because especially when we're looking at minerals that are ionized that means that they carry a charge right. in some cases they can actually compete for absorption and so if we take really high doses of you know zinc for example it could interfere with folate um, absorption, whereas others help um, with like iron and copper or taking iron with vitamin C. So I think that it's actually best to look at your habitual diet and determine what you might actually be deficient in. Um, so, and then look at also what are the effective doses in the literature. So looking at my diet, I am lactose intolerant. I really don't eat much dairy, if any at all. Um, and my only other dietary sources of calcium would be like in the fatty fish that I eat with bones. Um, but I don't fit those into my diet as well when I'm cutting. And so during those times, I'll take a calcium vitamin D supplement a couple times a day, get my thousand migs there, assuming that my absorption, because the bioavailability is much lower, may only be about 30 to 60%. So I still need to make sure that I'm finding other dietary sources of calcium. 
that makes sense kind of see what you're deficient in and then go down that route rather than kind of just yeah. hoping for things um, makes complete sense and i guess it's similar to like if you're not consuming the omega-3s from a fatty fish source like then you would supplement with their kind of supplement when you need it not as just a just insurance policy it's not necessarily something that's going to benefit you at all and like you said could be negative and it's really interesting to hear about kind of sometimes people take like stacks like you hear about kind of uh supplement stacks and yes everyone misses the fact that potentially they could actually combat with one another in terms of absorption and some like i think that's supplement companies you hope and as a consumer you're kind of just like yeah i mean if they're producing it they're kind of selling it as a stack surely that is actually they thought about that right but oftentimes like you just described even in multivitamins they're not thinking about it they're literally putting it in there and it's kind of counteracting one another which is mm -hmm. scary actually <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's just you know we can't there we can't really take one pill to like meet all of these different nutrient needs cool so brilliant answer and we will jump to the next question which i got loads of people asking about this i think it's a very kind of a trendy topic or it's just one that it kind of it's a touchy topic and it's all about sweeteners and kind of the impact mm -hmm. on the gut and i think you've done some great kind of and i even did an infographic recently talking about kind of potentially limiting your sources but i'd love to go through kind of what sweeteners impact the gut how they impact it and then kind of dosages types and then just any practical kind of advice you can give to the listeners yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are, when we talk about artificial sweeteners, um, I think a lot of people are kind of lumping every, you know, non-table sugar sweetener together, um, but they actually are, are quite different. So we have some sweeteners that most people are familiar with um, that are considered to be non-nutritive. So we are not um, able to digest and absorb and extract any energy from them. We also have some sweeteners that are a, a little bit nutritive. So, you know, perhaps we can um, extract some energy from them or they're going to be fermentable. And that means that the bacteria in our guts can help to um, extract energy from them for us. And so when we talk about, you know, the ones that people kind of get freaked out about, like our, our, our chemically produced sweeteners like saccharin um, or sucralose or aspartame, uh, those are the ones that we can consider to be non-nutritive. Now, when we buy them in bulk, they are usually cut with dextrose because they're so, so many times sweeter than sucrose that if you tried to use like just pure sucralose, it's 600 times sweeter than sucrose. You'd have to use like individual granules. So when we're using it in bulk, um, there are some calories provided uh, there because of the filler. When we look at the effects in the gut, uh, they, they are on sort of a spectrum of the most benign, doesn't seem to be doing anything at all, would be aspartame. Um, and then, you know, things that may have a minor effect on the gut would be sucralose and saccharin. Uh, and then things that probably have more of an effect on the gut would be the things that are, are more of our sugar alcohols and even the naturally occurring compounds um, like stevia. And then our sugar alcohols, uh, mannitol, sorbitol, xylitol, and erythritol. So aspartame also happens to have the greatest ADI. That, that means the highest acceptable daily intake. And um, it's one that I use. Uh, it's very inexpensive. You really don't buy it in bulk. You buy it in packets. So I use like in my coffee and my oatmeal. And I use probably about six to nine packets per day. And a person recently asked me, you know, what is a normal dose and like, what could a person feasibly take? And I said, well, if I calculate this because the ADI for aspartame um, is 40 mg per kilogram per day, that means that I'd have to take in something like um, 
I think it was 68 packets per day to re to meet the ADI for me or to drink 13 cans of soda in a day. And I don't do either one of those things. Um, if you do use that many packets per day, then yeah, you're approaching the ADI and it would probably be best, you know, to cut back a little bit. Um, saccharin and sucralose have similar, um, you know, fairly high ADIs. It's actually, it's pretty hard to reach those. Although, you know, with saccharin, um, I've seen in literature that some people met, um, near the ADI with like 15 packets per day. Um, stevia actually has the lowest. And when we talk about acceptable daily intake, it's just, you know, the, the point at which you start to perhaps see some side effects could even be just gastrointestinal discomfort and things like that. When we look about, when we look at what happens in, you know, cell culture and animal models, these are much more exaggerated, but we do see that in animal models, um, you know, high doses of, of sucralose contributed to pretty significant derangements and insulin sensitivity. When we actually do that in humans, we see that in a portion of people who take the ADI, we do see some changes in insulin, uh, insulin sensitivity. So that means, you know, perhaps some people um, should not be, you know, should, should limit their intake. And we do see that it does have changes in the microbiome. Similarly, um, stevia hasn't been studied quite as much, but in cell culture models, uh, it's quite inhibitive. Uh, uh, it's quite, it quite, well, I can't make words. Uh, uh, it's quite inhibitory of uh, lactobacillus growth. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to happen in the gut because there are plenty of studies that we look at in cell culture that don't play out. When we look at the sugar alcohols, those are actually um, can, can contribute to some pretty severe gastrointestinal distress, laxative effects. Um, they are, like I mentioned, slightly nutritive. They have about you know half the number of calories that we would get from a carbohydrate, so maybe like two or three calories per gram. Uh, bacteria can ferment those, and that's what causes um, gas and bloating. Now, that actually, you know, they're considered prebiotic in some cases. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing for the bacteria. Um, if you, you want, but, but what does gut health really mean? Are we concerned about like, you know, just the profile of bacteria or also how we feel probably also how we feel. So even though those bacteria may be having a heyday, you know, which way they do if, if we're lactose intolerant and we ingest lactose, oh, the bacteria aren't bothered at all, but we don't want to deal with, you know, the gas and bloating and things like that. So if you're using these in, you know, a reasonable way that most people would use them, you're probably not going to see a huge effect on, you know, gut health. Um, although when we talk about the sugar alcohols, those can lead to a gastrointestinal upset fairly easily. Um, you know, erythritol and mannitol are pretty commonly found in sort of like diet foods um, and, and xylitol is in sugar-free gum. So I've heard some people say, you know, if they if they're chewing a lot of sugar-free gum, they notice some some GI upset. Maybe they're also swallowing it and things like that. Um, so my my go-to's for for you know everyday use in the packets, aspartame because it seems to be the most benign. Um, and then for baking, I like to use sucralose because it's very you know you can get it in bulk and it's easy to bake with and really cuts down on um, caloric intake. Uh, you know, and if you wanted to use stevia because, you know, people feel more comfortable with it because it's like a naturally occurring compound. Okay. I just think that it tastes really bad. Like, I think it's so bitter. I have tried it and I can't, I can't use it. Um, but yeah, for people who are, you know, using cans of soda here and there to help stick to their overall nutritious diet, absolutely not a problem. Fantastic. No, really well explained about all the different types and 
also just the practical implications of how much you're having and it's funny when you talk about these things i can even remember as like a child reading like i think it was like polo mints had like on there it's like do not eat like the whole pack or something because yeah. <laughs> it can cause laxative effects and i can just remember being like scared of this ever since uh, <laughs> oh yeah yeah but in any actually in dieting and lots of people probably relate to this when you have like when you're in contest prep i know i was having like a packet of chewing gum a day and i could still i think it's individual like you said but i could get away with that and not have any problems whereas i have heard people kind of even like a few pieces in their stomach just churn so i guess it's quite individual in that regard Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't do, um, any of the ice creams that have like erythritol in them. Oh, it's not, you know, even if I get like the non-dairy kind, it's just as bad. So I really can't stomach that at all. And, um, I, you know, it's really, it's individual. Like most people can tolerate a little bit of it. Um, but you know, you get, you reach your threshold dose and then after that, it's just going to be pain and and partiness <laughs> i hear it a lot of the time i think it's mike who complains about certain protein bars when they have a lot of sugar alcohols he just can't handle it at all yeah i think a lot yep. of people end up being ignorant to it where they're just like they probably end up sitting like if they heard this they'd be like oh it's obviously that but they don't realize that that could be what's causing it so i think that's really interesting so we jump to the next question uh which is all to do with sodium and potassium uh, and what role that plays for gut health yeah, this is a really interesting question because um, it's not, we can look at it in a couple different ways. You can look at it in terms of, you know, what does it do for um, digestion and absorption, um, for just gastrointestinal upset, you know, for effect on, on the microbiota. Um, obviously, you know, bacteria I've mentioned before are quite finicky. And if we um, change their, the, the concentrations of electrolytes in, in you know, the the media, you can think of that like their growth media or in, in the lumen of the intestine, that could certainly, you know, have an effect on um, their growth, just like pH could. Um, when we think about it in terms of gastrointestinal upset, um, if we have, if people are kind of familiar with um, osmosis and diffusion, so osmosis is the movement of water um, across a membrane. And water, I used to always tell my, my students, water follows solute. So where you have a lot of things in solution, a high concentration of stuff, water will flow into that area. And so if we um, flood the gut with a lot of sodium, potassium, these electrolytes, and it and really increase the concentration there to the point where it's higher than the, you know, the other side of that membrane, then water can flood into the gut and then that could cause diarrhea. Um, if we think about it in terms of absorption, um, glucose transport requires sodium. So if you have, you know, severe sodium depletion, like, you know, sometimes people are doing like sodium cuts and water loading and things like that to prep for a show, you're actually, um, potentially inhibiting the absorption of glucose. So they really play, um, important roles there. And, and where we see that, um, play out more so is in the large intestine. That's where we see sort of water um, moving between compartments and, and absorption of electrolytes and things like that. And that's also where we have, um, you know, 99% of the bacteria in our gut are in our large intestine. And, and so that's where we would see the greatest effect. Um, but, and I don't know of any, um, you know, intervention studies really where they've looked at just modifying electrolyte levels uh, but it is certainly something that we think about in, in you know, for endurance athletes, um, ensuring not only a, a proper concentration of carbohydrate, 
um, in their beverages, but also um, replenishing sodium because it can be lost in sweat um, quite readily, especially in athletes who are, you know, exercising in the heat and things like that. So um, replenishing sodium as well as carbohydrate. It's very uncommon that we're going to be losing any potassium appreciably um, in sweat. But if you had someone who had, you know, severe vomiting and diarrhea, then that's where we could see losses of potassium as well. Okay. And that's super interesting. Like the, the fact that sodium has such a, like actually all the electrolytes, they just play such an interesting role and they're super important with loads of different oh, things yeah. within the body. Oh, In yeah. terms of like practical application for people, do they need to be kind of monitoring it or is there kind of, do they, should they follow maybe like a steady intake? What's kind of, or if there's any kind of, maybe they go out for a meal and it's super high in sodium and then they drink loads and find out they're kind of having issues. Is there ways they can kind of, kind of amend for that? Um, well, in the U.S., and in, in I don't know how it is, you know, and probably we see this in a lot of developed countries, but um, we get plenty of dietary sodium. Uh, and in some cases, you know, in some people who are um, predisposed to that, it may contribute to hypertension um, because, again, it's more solute. And so we're retaining more water um, in the blood vessels that, you know, can increase um, hypertension is high blood pressure. So, uh, but that's not the case across the board. There are people who can take in really high levels of sodium and be fine. With endurance athletes, their sodium requirements are actually um, quite high. And, you know, if I can recall back to my sport nutrition days, I think we would usually recommend if someone's going to do a, a long endurance bout of exercise, several hours, um, anywhere from uh, 300 to 700 mg per liter of sodium added into their carbohydrate beverage. But, you know, most sport beverages or powders that you get, they're going to have the electrolytes added. You really want to be careful with um, supplementing potassium. Uh, we, we, even though we are um, usually kind of deficient in potassium across the board because we're not taking in enough fruits and vegetables, uh, a lot of us are getting enough potassium and we will retain um, what, what we need. That's part of the role of the kidneys is that we're retaining proper levels of electrolytes. So in most cases, you know, if you're eating a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables, you're probably going to have fine potassium status. And if you're not eating a ton of processed foods, you're probably fine with sodium. And, you know, if you are not doing endurance exercise, it's really not something that you have to be too worried about. Um, just knowing that, you know, yeah, if you have like a, a restaurant meal and, you know, it's really high in sodium, you're going to retain water. Uh, and then, you know, the next day the scale will be up. Um, but you probably, unless you're doing it to the point where, you know, you're, it's causing you diarrhea and things like that, probably not a huge concern with regards, you know, specifically to gut health. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's, you kind of talked about the osmosis and we know the body drives for homeostasis, I guess, as long as you're not going too wacky with things, you can kind of, it, it strives for that. So you're going to become more thirsty if you end up having a little bit mm -hmm. more salt and things. And if, like you said, not predisposed to having kind of hypertension or whatever it might be for you that the doctors have said, then it's probably not something that a lot of day-to-day -day you need to be worrying about. More specific to like, like you said, kind of the, the peak week, talking about kind of the glycogen storage and everything there, then it becomes more of a something you need to monitor. But otherwise, um, no, brilliant answer. Really, really cool. Next question is again, really exciting kind of new avenues that people are looking towards is all to do with the circadian rhythm and the microbiome. So a lot of people are talking about circadian rhythm in terms of like sleeping and things, obviously a big impact. Also time of the day exercising and 
kind of when we're eating, when that whether that has an impact. So I don't know if there's been much looking at the microbiome and kind of what that has in terms of implications for us. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some rodent studies, and they did actually find that disruptions in circadian rhythm were associated with um, dysbiosis, you know, as they uh, defined it in, in those rodents. But that hasn't really played out to the same extent in humans. Um, so we don't, we again have that problem of replicability. Uh, and part of that is due to the different ways that we are measuring um, the, the microbiota uh, it, present in stool samples. Um, so, you know, depending on, on whether we're culturing it and then what assays we're running to help identify those species, uh, it's very difficult to make any conclusive statements because of just the heterogeneity between all of these studies. But we can look at sort of, you know, correlations between disruptions in circadian rhythm and what tends to happen with, you know, insulin signaling, with appetite, um, with sleep, with quality of life, and correlations between that and, you know, um, prevalence of cancers and, and um, you know, metabolic syndrome and things like that. And it's like even to the point where, you know, shift work where you have disrupted circadian rhythms um, can be contributed to certain types of cancer. Uh, we know that uh, sleep deprivation can lead to in- increased appetite, increased energy intake, um, cravings for specific, um, you know, highly palatable foods that are usually a combination of uh, refined carbohydrate with fat and salt. Those are, you know, we recently have realized that just taking in processed foods alone will drive hedonic eating. And so we tend to eat more. Um, and then in what we've seen, um, you know, in terms of, of insulin sensitivity that can be deranged, uh, correlated with weight gain and things like that. So, what we know about, you know, the microbiome specifically is still very limited. And a lot of it is just based on theory that if we have, you know, uh, shift work and we're really stressed out and circadian rhythms are thrown off and we have elevated cortisol, um, that could perhaps influence even gastric motility. So the movement of nutrients through the gut and, and, you know, our ability to undergo digestion and absorption. Uh, what's been really interesting is not really circadian rhythm studies in um, mice and humans, but in other animals and even invertebrates that are colonized by uh, microbiome. And they actually do, um, especially there's there's a specific squid and it is colonized by bioluminescent bacteria. These bacteria actually do influence gene regulation of specific genes that drive circadian rhythm in that squid. Um, so, you know, it's bioluminescing at specific times of night and things like that. And so I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, it's, it's not something that we can directly um, connect to humans because obviously, you know, the bacteria are extremely different and, you know, squid genome might be a little bit simpler than ours, probably not by much. We're all pretty closely related. But, um, yeah, so, so I think there's, there's a theoretical backing for that. And that's what they also see in, in mice is that this is a highly conserved gene that helps to regulate circadian rhythms. And so um, it does stand to reason that perhaps, you know, the microbiota could in some way influence gene regulation that could impact our circadian rhythms. Uh, really interesting and like the this yeah learning about the circadian rhythm and everything how the body just likes I guess you know, like all of us we kind of don't like change especially like physique athletes yeah. we love our routine and the body seems to thrive off that I don't know if there's been any research looking at and I don't know if you've specifically looked into like obviously when we're eating there's certain hormones that kind of almost ready us to consume food and 
the body kind of gets used to eating at certain times, like ghrelin will come up and we get hungry mm-hmm. and things like this. Do we kind of benefit from eating at similar times throughout the day? Have you found that to be the case or are we okay to eat at kind of random times or does that have implications? Um, when we look at, you know, sort of practical application, even if the mechanisms aren't entirely understood, it does look like having a consistent eating pattern is associated with better weight regulation. When we look at, um, you know, data from the National Weight Control Registry and we look at successful weight loss maintainers, that's one thing is that they have a pretty consistent eating schedule, you know, from day to day and then throughout the day as well. Um, and so I think that there is, um, you know, some promising evidence that that is helpful, even if we don't understand the mechanisms, but in terms of um, things like appetite regulation and, you know, better, even better self-restraint, you know, as we have reduced levels of hunger because we're eating at regular times. We know that, you know, meal frequency doesn't really matter if you want to eat three meals, if you want to eat, you know, eight meals. But getting in that bolus of protein, you know, every three to five hours, um, that certainly I think is well supported in the literature for helping to to optimize the amount of muscle mass that we can retain retain while on a cut. Um, And I think of a lot of this, you know, in terms of of adherence to a cut. But, you know, even in maintenance and even in massing, and I would say almost almost especially in maintenance, because that's when we sort of think that, okay, the diet is done now and I can, you know, go to whatever. It's almost like maintenance becomes a long weekend. Like, you know, how we, sometimes people have a harder time on the weekends. It's like now maintenance is just like one long weekend. And it's like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do now that the diet is over? And it's like, no, you still want to maintain that consistent um, eating pattern. But, you know, what, when we see what's happening in the gut acutely, it, we see perhaps changes in function because obviously, you know, oh, suddenly nutrients are available. And so the bacteria become more focused on um, nutrient metabolism, perhaps than other things like repair or communication with one another. Um, and uh, the sort of also, this, this kind of gets to fasting as well, you know, and people are, are really interested in the potential effects of fasting on the right. gut. Uh, there are very few studies. There have been, I know of one pilot study, um, and then one just recently came out on um, fasting mimicking diets, which was not actually fasting, but it was actually a very low calorie diet. Uh, and you know, there are some changes, perhaps in inflammatory markers in individuals who have an inflammatory bowel disease, or in the previous pilot study in individuals who had type two diabetes. But when we look at other uh, other models, it's you know fruit flies or um, zebrafish. It's very important to realize that the microbiota that are inhabiting some of these animals are very different from what we see in the human microbiome to the point where we may have, you know, entire phyla that are completely absent in their biome and and we have them in ours. So we can't say that, oh, because this increased the lifespan of fruit flies, that fasting probably increases the human lifespan too. Uh, That's one study that I've seen um, promoted quite a lot and I find it very frustrating because Mm -hmm. It's, you know, unless you get down into the reads, which is what I like to do. I like to know all the details. Yeah. Oh, how does this model, you know, equate to this other model? It's very easy to to make kind of a logical jump from, you know, one model to humans. But we really can't do that when it comes to um, the microbiota because they're so specific to to their niche. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, I would say it's probably, I think there's more support for overall adherence and success with a consistent eating pattern. Cool. 
And actually, to bring up, you brought up fasting, and I think we've talked about this before, potentially. I don't know if anything's changed, but I think I've heard potentially people talk about, and I guess in my head, it almost makes some sort of inherent sense. Kind of fasting gives the stomach and the gut a rest, so that obviously rest and recovery is a good thing. But I think you kind of uh, busted that myth last time. I'd love you to kind of go over it again, or, or if anything's changed. Yeah, um, I think this is sort of an interesting, I'm not sure why we think that like certain organs need rest and others don't. I mean, if you think about it, like, well, yeah, we have some rest for our brains in, in a way, you know, while we're sleeping, um, you know, that's when we're sort of uh, removing uh, waste products and stuff from, from our cerebral spinal fluid and, you know, cleaning house and stuff like that. Uh, but like our heart and our lungs, I mean, those don't rest. No. Like <laughs> it would be very bad if they not. needed to rest. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we're, we're all of our cells. I mean, we're active all the time. Like if you think about just, just producing proteins, just transcription and translation in every single cell, um, you know, a thousand times per minute, it's, it's just where we're, we're always on and we're sort of made to, to always be on. Now there are times certainly when we do want to, um, you know, reduce oral food intake if we have, uh, you know, a severe bout of, uh, you know, like food poisoning, nausea, vomiting and things like that. Um, or, you know, in other cases in a clinical setting, um, it's, you can't take in anything by mouth. Yeah. So in, in some extreme cases we have to do that, but the, the under the, the underlying, um, note there that's really key, um, even, you know, as I'm going through medical nutrition therapy is that you progress to solid foods. You don't purposely fast a person, um, for, for just for giving their, their intestines a rest in most cases. That's not why it's not because they need to rest. It's because something else is going on. We have a pathology there, but, um, in cases where people are, you know, on, on, um, total to like IV nutrition and nothing is going through the gut, that's actually extremely risky for them. Um, because we can see atrophy of those muscles. Right. And, um, so that actually becomes a concern in, in those cases. And there, I would say because of the lack of evidence supporting any benefit to fasting in that way, specifically like, oh, are we have, I, you know, I'm trying to think of what people would think, like, are, are we regenerating more or something like that? Like, there's just really no evidence for that. And the bacteria that are in our, in our intestines, they need nutrients too. They have much shorter lifespans than we do. And if, uh, we don't give them the nutrients that they need, they will use what is available. And, um, the, the mucus that covers our intestinal cells is actually a great source of energy for the bacteria in our gut. And so if we fast for a really, really long period of time and they need nutrients, then certainly they will have at it, you know, there with, with the mucus. Um, and that's not something we want. We, we right. want to make sure that we have a nice thick mucus layer. Uh, so, you know, if in some cases people find that doing, you know, intermittent fasting, which is pretty short term, helps them to yeah. adhere to their, you know, caloric needs. And that's fine. I don't think that, you know, there, there's, there's equally no evidence to say that like, you know, doing a fast overnight or even for like, you know, 16 hours is going to have really deleterious effects on your health aside from, you know, it's not ideal for body composition, maintaining muscle mass. Um, but yeah, I, I would say, you know, in terms of the evidence, what do we have so far? I don't think it's really strong, um, in either case, but when we look at, you know, what the bacteria need and what they might be doing, I think it's probably not prudent to be fasting for a long period of time, 
Um, and also, you know, in individuals who do have you know, gastrointestinal disease, um, that can be uh, a risk for them because right. they may already be at, uh, you know, not an ideal nutrient status because they have issues with digestion and absorption. So, you know, if you have a pathology like that, like absolutely work with a with a dietitian who's, you know, really well versed in that area. Fantastic answer and really interesting. And I love the comparison to like the lungs and the heart, obviously always being active. Because <laughs> I think we do sometimes have these, uh, I'm sure a lot of kind of, that's where the initial kind of bro science came from sometimes where we have the initial assumptions, then it's kind of like, then science searches into them. Like we thought the earth was flat at one point and now we yes. realize no, well, most people realize it's, it's actually <laughs> not round. Uh, I mean, not, not flat rather. Uh, so yeah. yeah, fantastic. And actually related to kind of something you were talking about uh, with the circadian rhythm and stress is someone asked about, um, where is it? So why is eating the sympathetic state kind of a bad thing or poorer for digestion? I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. This is so interesting. I've heard this question a couple times and I, I think I know where it's coming from. I think that um, there might be, you know, one or one or two fit pros out there that have sort of postulated this idea. Um, and I'm not, I, and, and I, you know, I, I will have to go look. I, whenever I hear something like this that really just doesn't make a lot of sense physiologically, um, you know, I want to go out and look for reasons why that person might think they're right. You know, what are they sort of basing this on? And I would imagine that they are probably applying, um, you know, an increase in sympathetic nervous system tone that we see during exercise to the, like the rest of the day. And assuming that at other times in the day, we may be in a, in a, in a sympathetic state or, you know, increased sympathetic nervous system tone. Um, interestingly, I was just reading an article last night on um, the provision of a yogurt drink during um, during like the, the hot summer months, and the um, the researchers they had a few tests in there that were like really bunk. But in one case, they said that they had measured sympathetic versus or high and low sympathetic tone, and they compared it and they said the people in the yogurt group had lower sympathetic tone, but there was no explanation about like what they actually used to measure this with, you know? So it was sort of like one of those things that it wasn't in the methods. They just put it in the results. It was really weird. We can make some, you know, assumptions about an increase in sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system tone, sometimes based on like, you know, heart rate variability or things like that. And we know that we have an increase in sympathetic nervous system tone um, during exercise because that that causes some of the acute changes that we see during exercise, like increased heart rate, um, uh, uh, you know, pooling blood away from the intestines and, and towards working muscles. Um, we see less blood flow to the adipocytes. It's part of the reason why, like during really intense exercise, you really can't use fats as much. They actually kind of get trapped in the fat cells. Uh, so in that respect, yes, there is, there's a presence of increased sympathetic nervous system tone, or if you have someone who, uh, you know, perhaps has a, an anxiety disorder and, um, experiences panic attacks and things like that, that's an increase in sympathetic nervous system activity, that fight or flight parasympathetic nervous system activity occurs after a meal. It's part of what increases gastric motility, um, or the movement of the a gastrointestinal tract that helps us digest and absorb foods. Uh, and that's via primarily the vagus nerve. And that's really where we see, you know, um, sort of, we, that's what we theorize is where we see that, that 
bidirectional communication between the gut microbiome and the brain uh, in mice who have that severed, they don't see the same beneficial effects of modulations to the gut microbiota like through um, probiotic supplementation. So you really don't, from, I, I don't know how they think you would induce a sympathetic nervous system response, like aside from exercise or, you know, perhaps like being in a, in a panicked state. Um, but theoretically, if we assume that, you know, perhaps a person is trying to eat a full meal while exercising, um, this is something that Dean Karnazes does. He is uh, like an ultra, ultra marathoner. Yes, I've, seen, I've yeah, read the yeah, book, yeah. I think. Yeah. He yeah, ordered like so pizzas amazing. whilst he runs. Yeah, exactly. A pizza read, no. Um, and we can train the gut to some extent. And so he has sort of trained his gut just like we can, you know, train our muscles to clear lactate better and things like that. And so he does actually a really great job of eating a lot of foods that most people would not be able to readily digest and absorb. Uh, so he's, he's an outlier, but what we see during, you know, that, that during exercise and during the sympathetic nervous system, uh, an increase in that tone is reduced blood flow to the intestines. Um, and that leads to reduced oxygen availability, changes in pH. Um, if we're talking about exercise, also kind of just mechanical stresses and a lot of jostling, um, in terms of, there are very few acute studies on functional changes in the microbiome, but they have shown that they there are changes away from nutrient uh, handling and more towards like flagellar assembly and things like that. So perhaps they're trying to, you know, stay fixated to the mucosa. Um, who knows? Like we're, this is really just an extrapolation. We don't know what's going on. Uh, but at really high intensities, about, you know, 80% VO2 max, we actually see um, a reduction in gastric emptying as well. So that means that food is not leaving the stomach as readily, and the food that does leave the stomach is not being um, digested and absorbed as readily, and then, you know, not entering bloodstream. So that's why we, when, when we give recommendations during endurance exercise, you know, we're talking about specific comp uh, concentrations of specific types of carbohydrates that we know, uh, based on the literature, are... Um, able to pretty, you know, efficiently enter the bloodstream and actually be utilized. So in that respect, if we're thinking about, you know, eating in a sympathetic state, then I could say, yeah, you would have some derangements in digestion, absorption, and nutrient utilization. Um, but if we are talking about not during exercise, during, you know, throughout the day, um, that, that parasympathetic nervous system tone really increases and there's sort of a a, a reciprocal a feedback loop in, you know, smelling the food, seeing the food, is chewing it, swallowing it, it enters the stomach, those things will all drive gastric motility. So we have increases in gastrin, we have increases in the production of hydrochloric acid, pancreas, um, you know, produces its own digestive enzymes. And then the, the stretching of the stomach, the stretching of the the duodenum all throughout the small intestine um, increases those peristaltic contractions. And so that increases parasympathetic nervous system tone. It's actually one of the theories behind why we get like the itis after we have a big meal is that we have so much increased parasympathetic nervous system tone that it actually can, you know, cause us to become sleepy. Carb comas. I think, yes, exactly, exactly. Food coma. Now, I think that I have heard, I think one person at one point said that I think the idea was that in a sympathetic tone, you are either inhibiting or increasing just the use of glucose and then you're not able to burn fats. Um, and again, 
theoretically, when we talk about like what's happening physiologically during exercise, um, that, that does, that's not false. <laughs> um, so like I mentioned, um, the closer we reach, the closer we've come to our, our VO2 max, so the more intensely we're exercising, um, the less oxygen we have available, available um, in sufficient amounts to oxidize fats and to run the electron transport chain and to even just, you know, transport fatty acids out of the adipocytes. Uh, that's part of the reason why endurance athletes, you know, they, they can run consecutive five minute miles for two hours. They're in these marathons at, at just extreme speeds. Well, because they have intramuscular triglycerides that are right next to the mitochondria. So we don't have to worry so much about transporting them through the blood. So that really helps. Um, they clear lactate more efficiently. So we don't have the lactate trapping the, the fat, um, in the adipocytes. Um, an increased mitochondrial number. So they have more sites for beta oxidation or fat oxidation and the electron transport chain, which is, um, you know, how we require, uh, it's the system that requires oxygen to make ATP. And then they also have increased red blood cell count. They can, you know, carry more oxygen. So as we exercise um, and do more endurance exercise, we make all these adaptations that allow us then to use fats at higher levels of intensity. But when we are thinking about a person sitting and eating a meal, even if you were to feel like anxious during that meal, it's very unlikely that you would have all of that going on that would just inhibit you from, you know, being able to lose fat. Um, and, and maybe that is also, you know, to tie it in with people are thinking about like elevated cortisol levels, preventing fat loss and things like that, um, which is also not the case. We just, there, there's no evidence that any hormone can in an energy deficit prevent us from losing body fat mm -hmm. no brilliant answer and i mean you dived into it really deeply and i guess to, <laughs> to, it's really interesting to give the practical application of that is that something along the lines of thinking about around your workouts particularly like pre and during be careful about what you're consuming in that it's the stress from the exercise especially if you're going at higher intensities uh, and then post I guess it's a case of now you're not exercising and actually getting something in sooner isn't probably an issue because of the fact it's going to drive parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And so what we want to think about more, I think the more important practical applications are not necessarily nervous system tone, um, but how can we mitigate gastrointestinal upset? Right. And, you know, that would be, you know, limiting fats before your workout, limiting fiber before your workout, especially limiting FODMAPs. Um, this has been shown pretty helpful, especially with females who, who have like exercise induced gastrointestinal upset. It's very common. Um, and even, you know, limiting dairy pre-workout and then during your workout, ensuring that you get the proper concentration of carbohydrates in your beverage, um, those electrolytes, if you really need it, you know, if you're going for several hours, and then post-workout, again, we, you know, ideally you're keeping fats um, fairly low because that really speed, it, it will speed gastric emptying, meaning it takes less time for foods to exit our stomach and get to the small intestine where then those nutrients can be absorbed. Although we know, you know, the post-workout anabolic window is, is it's a barn door, you know, mm -hmm. it's not a window. Um, but ideally, it's, it's not even so much for um, muscle protein synthesis as we've seen in, in recent research that, you know, the insulin 
increase there isn't so much for that, but actually just for glycogen replenishment. Right. And, you know, so that can be very helpful. Um, if a person is, is an athlete, you know, general exercisers, recreational athletes, um, you know, they probably just can, can have like normal balanced meals before and after, but, you know, really limiting fat before just to prevent gastric cool. upset. Fantastic. Um, so we'll probably have time for one more question, depending on, yes. um, how, how deep you go into this, but this is probably <laughs> something that's a bit edgy at the moment because it brings mm -hmm. up carnivore and the carnivore <laughs> diet. So this yeah. is asking kind of, obviously it asks the question of any research on elimination diets being effective for solving digestive issues. And obviously you spoke about FODMAPs and I think you've spoken about them mm -hmm. before. He, the person specifically brought up kind of the carnivore diet. So I'd love you to kind of dive into maybe the carnivore diet. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, this was actually at the, the recently at the conference that I was just at. Um, you know, someone had asked about the carnivore diet because it was brought up as sort of gets conflated with with the ketogenic diet a lot. Um, and any elimination diet is only intended to be temporary, um, unless we identify what needs to be eliminated forever, like you know, with celiac gluten. Okay. I mean, we could, if you want to consider that, um, like an elimination diet, we have to eliminate that from the diet or, you know, lactose. So in some cases we eliminate a specific food, um, or specific, you know, few foods that contain this ingredient that could be, you know, cause a, an, an, an allergic response. Um, but when people get to the extremes of elimination diets, like carnivore, where we're literally only eating animal flesh and organ meats, um, or even the FODMAP diet can be extremely restrictive. Things like Whole30, which is just another version of, a, of an, an elimination diet, they're not intended to be um, a, a lifestyle. And even, you know, I, I follow Mark Bell on Instagram. I'm fascinated, even though I might be sort of argumentative at times. Um, and even he recently posted a picture of his meal, and now he's eating like avocado and whole grain bread oh, and good. things like that. You know, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, adherence alone is a problem and I really commend the folks that I've worked with, um, you know, and I've recommended the low FODMAP approach and I walk them through that. And, you know, even those couple weeks where they're doing, you know, the elimination phase, it's very difficult to stick to. And you're not meant to do that for months and months. It should be anywhere from three, you know, maybe up to six weeks I've seen as, as the upward recommendation, but where you start reintroducing foods. The idea is always that you know you start with the elimination just to remove the known you know common irritants, and then you test back in not just which ones you can tolerate, but also how much you can tolerate because you want to get to a point where you can you know you're below your threshold, but you still have a variable diet. The more diverse our diet, we've seen that this correlates very strongly with diversity of the microbiome. Um, it seems that protein has a pretty strong effect. Fiber obviously has a huge effect. Um, even perhaps fat type, like we're looking at um, the presence of saturated fats, that may also have an effect as well. So if you're reducing or removing, you know, all complex carbohydrates and um, uh, every, well, not even just complex carbohydrates, carnivore, you literally are not eating any sort of plant matter you're going to really reduce the numbers of bacteria that, that need to ferment those fibers to thrive. Uh, you may really be increasing the number of, of uh, bile acid tolerant bacteria. Um, that can be good or bad depending on which bacteria we're talking about. And also the bacteria that 
um, that metabolize amino acids and may start to um, reduce, uh, degrade your mucin layer. Uh, there's also some evidence that, um, you know, they play a role in the production of uh, TMAO, which is a marker for um, cardiovascular disease. Uh, and that in, in some cases, you know, in, in both in, in rodent and in human studies, when we've looked at even the ketogenic di style diets, which aren't terribly restrictive, but are still really low in, you know, complex carbohydrates and fibers, that we do see a loss of diversity. And so when we take it to the extreme and take that out for a really long period of time, I think it's feasible to say that you would see huge changes in the microbiota because we've seen that in humans just in as little as five days. If we compare uh, a really high plant uh, protein, you know, vegan diet versus a really high animal protein diet, we saw significant changes um, at multiple levels of taxa. So both, you know, the more general, like kind of um, phyla and genus and, and even some species. Uh, so I don't think that it's, um, I don't think that it's a prudent approach to take that out for a long period of time. And if you do feel better, that's good. It means that you have removed one or more foods that caused you some gastric upset. The next step is then to start reintroducing those foods. Fantastic. I, I'd love to reiterate the fact that you said any kind of uh, diet where you are eliminating anything, it's a short term kind of solution. And the idea is to start building things back in. I've, I actually even know, I know of someone who they were traveling for six months and they couldn't get any uh, lactose in their diet. They had no dairy there. So then when they came back, they found that they then had a real big issue with lactose. And uh, it's, it's scary. It's kind of like those use it or lose it type of scenario. Uh-huh. So I want to say a massive thank you for you coming on, Gabrielle. This has been a fantastic podcast, giving insight into the things that people can look forward to on the 11th of May in London. Again, this is going to be linked in the bio below if you want to get a ticket. Uh, come and say hi to Gabrielle and the rest of the guys. Again, thank you, Gabrielle. And I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in. Yeah, thank you, guys.